Chapter Seven of Our Parish from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter Seven of Our Parish. Our next door neighbour. We are very fond of speculating as we walk through a street on the character and pursuits of the people who inhabit it, and nothing so materially assists us in these speculations as the appearance of the house doors. The various expressions of the human countenance afford a beautiful and interesting study, but there is something in the physiognomy of street-door knockers almost as characteristic and nearly as infallible. Whenever we visit a man for the first time, we contemplate the features of his knocker with the greatest curiosity, for we well know that between the man and his knocker there will inevitably be a greater or less degree of resemblance and sympathy. For instance, there is one description of knocker that used to be common enough, but which is fast passing away, a large round one, with the jolly face of a convivial lion smiling blandly at you. As you twist the sides of your hair into a curl, or pull up your shirt-collar while you are waiting for the door to be opened. We never saw that knocker on the door of a churlish man. So far as our experience is concerned, it invariably bespoke hospitality and another bottle. No man ever saw this knocker on the door of a small attorney or bill-broker. They always patronise the other lion, a heavy, ferocious-looking fellow with a countenance expressive of savage stupidity, a sort of grand master among the knockers, and a great favourite with the selfish and brutal. Then there is a little pert Egyptian knocker, with a long, thin face, a pinched-up nose, and a very sharp chin. He is most in vogue with your government office people, in light drabs and starched cravats. Little, spare, priggish men, who are perfectly satisfied with their own opinions, and consider themselves of paramount importance. We were greatly troubled a few years ago by the innovation of a new kind of knocker, without any face at all, composed of a wreath depending from a hand or small truncheon. A little trouble and attention, however, enabled us to overcome this difficulty, and to reconcile the new system to our favourite theory. You will invariably find this knocker on the doors of cold and formal people, who always ask you why you don't come, and never say do. Everybody knows the brass knocker is common to suburban villas and extensive boarding schools, and having noticed this genus, we have recapitulated all the most prominent and strongly defined species. Some phrenologists affirm that the agitation of a man's brain by different passions produces corresponding developments in the form of his skull. Do not let us be understood as pushing our theory to the full length of asserting that any alteration in a man's disposition would produce a visible effect on the feature of his knocker. Our position merely is that in such a case the magnetism which must exist between a man and his knocker would induce the man to remove and seek some knocker more congenial to his altered feelings. If you ever find a man changing his habitation without any reasonable pretext, depend upon it that although he may not be aware of the fact himself, it is because he and his knocker are at variance. This is a new theory, but we venture to launch it, nevertheless, as being quite as ingenious and infallible as many thousands of the learned speculations which are daily broached for public good and private fortune-making. 
Entertaining these feelings on the subject of knockers, it will be readily imagined with what consternation we viewed the entire removal of the knocker from the door of the house next door to the one we lived in some time ago, and the substitution of a bell. This was a calamity we had never anticipated. The bare idea of anybody being able to exist without a knocker appeared so wild and visionary that it had never for one instant entered our imagination. We sauntered moodily from the spot and bent our steps towards Eaton Square, then just building. What was our astonishment and indignation to find that bells were fast becoming the rule, and knockers the exception? Our theory trembled beneath the shock. We hastened home, and fancying we foresaw in the swift progress of events its entire abolition, resolved from that day forward to vent our speculations on our next-door neighbours in person. The house adjoining ours on the left hand was uninhabited, and we had, therefore, plenty of leisure to observe our next-door neighbours on the other side. The house without the knocker was in the occupation of a city clerk, and there was a neatly written bill in the parlour window, intimating that lodgings for a single gentleman were to be let within. It was a neat, dull little house, on the shady side of the way, with new narrow floor-cloth in the passage, and new narrow stair-carpets up to the first floor. The paper was new, and the paint was new, and the furniture was new, and all three, paper, paint, and furniture, bespoke the limited means of the tenant, there was a little red and black carpet in the drawing-room, with a border of flooring all the way round, a few stained chairs and a Pembroke table. A pink shell was displayed on each of the little sideboards, which, with the addition of a tea-tray and caddy, a few more shells on the mantelpiece, and three peacock's feathers, tastefully arranged above them, completed the decorative furniture of the apartment. This was the room destined for the reception of the single gentleman during the day and a little back room on the same floor was assigned as his sleeping apartment by night. The bill had not been long in the window when a stout, good-humoured-looking gentleman of about five-and-thirty appeared as a candidate for the tenancy. Terms were soon arranged, for the bill was taken down immediately after his first visit. In a day or two the single gentleman came in, and shortly afterwards his real character came out. First of all, he displayed a most extraordinary partiality for sitting up till three or four o'clock in the morning, drinking whisky and water and smoking cigars. Then he invited friends home, who used to come at ten o'clock, and begin to get happy about the small hours, when they evinced their perfect contentment by singing songs, with half a dozen verses of two lines each, and a chorus of ten which chorus used to be shouted forth by the whole strength of the company, in the most enthusiastic and vociferous manner, to the great annoyance of the neighbours, and the special discomfort of another single gentleman overhead. Now this was bad enough, occurring as it did three times a week on the average, but this was not all, for when the company did go away, instead of walking quietly down the street, as anybody else's company would have done, they amused themselves by making alarming and frightful noises, and counterfeiting the shrieks of females in distress. And one night a red-faced gentleman in a white hat knocked in the most urgent manner at the door of the powdered-headed old gentleman at number three. And when the powdered-headed old gentleman, who thought one of his married daughters must have been taken ill prematurely, had groped downstairs, 
and after a great deal of unbolting and key-turning opened the street door, the red-faced man in the white hat said he hoped he'd excuse him giving so much trouble, but he'd feel obliged if he'd favour him with a glass of cold spring water, and the loan of a shilling for a cab to take him home on which the old gentleman slammed the door and went upstairs and threw the contents of his water-jug out of window, very straight, only it went over the wrong man, and the whole street was involved in confusion. A joke's a joke, and even practical jests are very capital in their way, if you can only get the other party to see the fun of them, but the population of our street were so dull of apprehension as to be quite lost to a sense of the drollery of this proceeding, and the consequence was that our next-door neighbour was obliged to tell the single gentleman that, unless he gave up entertaining his friends at home, he really must be compelled to part with him. The single gentleman received the remonstrance with great good humour, and promised from that time forward to spend his evenings at a coffee-house, a determination which afforded general and unmixed satisfaction. The next night passed off very well, everybody being delighted with the change, but on the next the noises were renewed with greater spirit than ever, the single gentleman's friends being unable to see him in his own house every alternate night, had come to the determination of seeing him home every night, and what with the discordant greetings of the friends at parting, and the noise created by the single gentleman in his passage upstairs, and his subsequent struggles to get his boots off, the evil was not to be borne. So our next-door neighbour gave the single gentleman, who was a very good lodger in other respects, notice to quit, and the single gentleman went away, and entertained his friends in other lodgings. The next applicant for the vacant first floor was of a very different character from the troublesome single gentleman who had just quitted it. He was a tall, thin young gentleman, with a profusion of brown hair, reddish whiskers, and very slightly developed moustaches. He wore a braided surtout, with frogs behind, light grey trousers, and wash-leather gloves, and had altogether rather a military appearance, so unlike the roistering single gentleman such insinuating manners and such a delightful address so seriously disposed too when he first came to look at the lodgings he inquired most particularly whether he was sure to be able to get a seat in the parish church and when he had agreed to take them he requested to have a list of the different local charities as he intended to subscribe his might to the most deserving among them our next-door neighbour was now perfectly happy he had got a lodger at last of just his own way of thinking, a serious, well-disposed man who abhorred gaiety and loved retirement. He took down the bill with a light heart, and pictured in imagination a long series of quiet Sundays, on which he and his lodger would exchange mutual civilities and Sunday papers. The serious man arrived, and his luggage was to arrive from the country next morning. He borrowed a clean shirt and a prayer-book from our next-door neighbour, and retired to rest at an early hour, requesting that he might be called punctually at ten o'clock next morning, not before, as he was much fatigued. He was called, and did not answer. He was called again, but there was no reply. Our next-door neighbour became alarmed, and burst the door open. The serious man had left the house mysteriously, carrying with him the shirt, the prayer-book, a teaspoon, 
and the bedclothes. Whether this occurrence, coupled with the irregularities of his former lodger, gave our next-door neighbour an aversion to single gentlemen, we know not. We only know that the next bill which made its appearance in the parlour window intimated generally that there were furnished apartments to let on the first floor. The bill was soon removed. The new lodgers at first attracted our curiosity, and afterwards excited our interest. They were a young lad of eighteen or nineteen, and his mother, a lady of about fifty, or it might be less. The mother wore a widow's weeds, and the boy was also clothed in deep mourning. They were poor, very poor, for their only means of support arose from the pittance the boy earned by copying writings, and translating for booksellers. They had removed from some country place and settled in London, partly because it afforded better chances of employment for the boy, and partly, perhaps, with the natural desire to leave a place where they had been in better circumstances, and where their poverty was known. They were proud under their reverses, and above revealing their wants and privations to strangers. How bitter those privations were, and how hard the boy worked to remove them, no one ever knew but themselves. Night after night, two, three, four hours after midnight, could we hear the occasional raking up of the scanty fire, or the hollow and half-stifled cough, which indicated his being still at work, and day after day could we see more plainly that nature had set that unearthly light in his plaintive face, which is the beacon of her worst disease. Actuated, we hope, by a higher feeling than mere curiosity, we contrived to establish first an acquaintance, and then a close intimacy with the poor strangers. Our worst fears were realised. The boy was sinking fast. Through a part of the winter, and the whole of the following spring and summer, his labours were unceasingly prolonged, and the mother attempted to procure needlework, embroidery, anything for bread. A few shillings now and then were all she could earn. The boy worked steadily on, dying by minutes, but never once giving utterance to complaint or murmur. One beautiful autumn evening we went in to pay our customary visit to the invalid, his little remaining strength had been decreasing rapidly for two or three days preceding, and he was lying on the sofa at the open window, gazing at the setting sun. His mother had been reading the Bible to him, for she closed the book as we entered and advanced to meet us. "'I was telling William,' she said, "'that we must manage to take him into the country somewhere, so that he may get quite well. He is not ill, you know, but he is not very strong, and has exerted himself too much lately.' Poor thing! The tears that streamed through her fingers as she turned aside, as if to adjust her close widow's cap, too plainly showed how fruitless was the attempt to deceive herself. We sat down by the head of the sofa, but said nothing, for we saw the breath of life was passing, gently but rapidly, from the young form before us. At every respiration his heart beat more slowly. The boy placed one hand in ours, grasped his mother's arm with the other, drew her hastily towards him, and fervently kissed her cheek. There was a pause. He sank back upon his pillow, and looked long and earnestly in his mother's face. "'William, William,' murmured the mother after a long interval, "'don't look at me so. Speak to me, dear.' The boy smiled languidly, but an instant afterwards his features resolved into the same cold, solemn gaze. "'William, dear William, rouse yourself.' "'Don't look at me so, love. Pray don't. 
oh my god what shall i do cried the widow clasping her hands in agony my dear boy he is dying the boy raised himself by a violent effort and folded his hands together mother dear dear mother bury me in the open fields anywhere but in these dreadful streets i should like to be where you can see my grave but not in these close crowded streets they have killed me kiss me again mother put your arm round my neck he fell back and a strange expression stole upon his features not of pain or suffering but an indescribable fixing of every line and muscle the boy was dead end of chapter 7 of our parish from sketches by boz